Hi everyone, welcome back to another podcast. I'm your host Max Shannon. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Clement Davies, uh, partner at Augusta & Co. Simon joined Augusta & Co in 2009 and focuses on new business generation, client development and marketing for the firm, as well as leading Augusta's activities in supply chain M&A. Simon deploys over 20 years professional experience as an investment banker in private and public M&A, equity capital raising and structured finance. He began his career at Hill Samuel, where he became a director at Hill Samuel Securities, specialising in cross-border M&A, and subsequently ran the media desk at Bankers Trust, where his clients included a number of Europe's leading media businesses. And finally, Simon holds a BA in Modern History from Oxford University. Firstly, Simon, thank you for joining me today. Um, yeah, that's a pleasure. Pleasure to do so. Can you explain what Augusta & Co is, and, and can you give some yeah. background about some of the largest transactions since inception, perhaps. Yeah, 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 no, sure. So, uh, so Augusta is um, what we call a boutique advisory firm. So, uh, and, and the way that works um, is that the, uh, it, was, it was funded by a group of, of um, uh, former, what we call bulge bracket investment bankers, terrible term, which means worked at some of the, 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 the larger investment banks like Goldman Sachs, I was a Bankers Trust, JP Morgan and so on. So, on. <clears throat> so um, and, and all of the guys who would, I mean, there were actually uh, uh, initially three who set it up and, uh, and they were joined by, by, by others over the years, in, in, including me in 2009. But we was set up in, in 2002. And um, really just to, 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 in a wave of, of uh, new uh, so-called boutique advisory firms, in other words, where you're, you're providing uh, financial advisor advice <clears throat> to clients and you don't need a balance sheet. So if you don't need a balance sheet, why do you need a big investment bank behind you? Um, so the firm has thrived very well and, and actually interestingly, was one of the very first into the renewable energy sector back in the first deal that we did in the sector was in 2004. And, and this was long before um, sustainability became a kind of central driving um, uh, issue uh, both at, 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 for at a global level, you know, and of course an industrial level. So it was well before that. It looked like a good idea at the, at the time, and um, so. But we were early into the into the into the game, um, and in the time since then, we've now completed something over a hundred transactions in total, um, which have raised in excess of twelve billion euros. So we a typical transaction we handle is around about 100 million uh, euros in, in, in overall value. Um, or for, in terms of generating capacity, uh, it represents over 20 gigawatts in total. So as I'm sure you know, the UK's total generating capacity is in the order of 70 gigawatts. So 20 gigawatts is, is, uh, is a substantial amount. And we work all over Europe. So we're happy to work, although we're, we're largely based in London, we got offices in Norway and one in Madrid. And and uh, and a fledgling one in 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 Paris, and uh, but we we've we've always been happy to travel anywhere in Europe, um, and to some extent in the Far East as well. We've done a couple of deals in the Far East, which are which are really interesting. But 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 anyways, to come back to the second part of your your question, um, Max, uh, to, to give you an example of some of the bigger deals that we've done, um, I'll give you give you one from two years ago, which was a, a company called Nelia Energia. And this was the largest, what we call IPP, which is an independent power producer, uh, largest IPP in the Baltic states 
which of course, as as I'm sure you know, are Estonia, Lithuania, and and, and Latvia. Um, and uh, the transaction size was uh, just a tick under 500 million euros in 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 total. It was a fascinating deal for a few reasons. One was because it was it it represented an illustration of how renewable energy was moving center stage in the infrastructure um, uh, world. Um, secondly, because because you know the individual Baltic countries are, are, are relatively small, so on their own they are less or they were less interesting to big investors. You took them as a whole, um, and Nelio and Negio uh, operated around the Baltic states. That became a, a deal that was well worth doing. And others, all of them had looked at the Nordic regions, but hadn't really extended to the Baltics. With a deal of that scale, they were they were they were very willing to leap over the over the, over the fence, so to speak, um, and uh, and get involved in a transaction of that of that kind. So um, a very very interesting transaction. We'd be happy to talk to you about some of the details so that obviously I can't talk to you about all of them um but uh an, a very important transaction another one uh was it was a deal that we did um last year <coughs> um which is actually in Sweden again we're still in the Nordics but that's actually because I'm largely being responsible for overseeing our Nordic activities so I can talk talk about it in in some detail it was announced in January this year um it was again the sale of an IPP in independent power, which is the biggest in Sweden, called uh, Ravelsader Craft, and uh, we were we were we were actually in the very, we were in the, we were mandated to sell a majority stake in the business. Um, and uh, what was particularly interesting about it was that, of course, it came right in the middle of the lockdown, so we were due to launch the transaction in May last year, and the immediate question was. Is this actually a good time to to uh, to, to launch a, a new deal? Because it was too early at the time in May last year to know whether or not we were facing a sort of similar crisis to the the financial crisis of 2007-8, when a lot of activity just completely jerked ground to a halt. So we were concerned, of course, that this might happen again. We knew by May last year that everyone was working ferociously hard. We're all working from home. We're all in lockdown. And everyone was working unbelievably long hours. What we weren't sure enough about, though, was whether that activity would tread, translate into a, a closed transaction. In other words, were people treading water, or were we going to be able to reach 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 dry land? Okay, so what we did is we we tested the idea out with some some of our key investors and uh, talked to them, just asked them, the ones whom we knew ought to be very interested in this deal whether they would welcome another another transaction at that time. And the interesting thing is that all of them came back and said, absolutely yes. So that was the sort of illustration of what was happening in 2020, because whereas other sectors of the of the economy, whether, for example, travel or hospitality, you know, which obviously were really badly hit by the lockdown, the renewable energy sector intensified in activity last year. Um, and I think I think for two reasons. The first is that um, infrastructure investment design, if you have an infra fund, so-called infrastructure investment fund, you will look at transportation, railways, roads, airports, airline, you know, shipping, all the really, these really big areas. They really did freeze up in the middle of last year. So a lot of infra funds could say, well, at least what we can do is continue to invest in renewable energy. So we found uh, the level of investment really strengthening. Uh, and that was borne out across the year. So by the end of the year, we'd had another record um, achievement. 
and uh, we were read Radius Movements 2021. So behind this issue, behind the issue of COVID and the lockdown, this was confirmation of the fact that um, that that sustainability, you know, what's 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 usually referred to now as 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 the ESG um, uh, agenda, um, was absolutely central. And and this is the most interesting thing that we've seen over the last two years, is that it's moved from being an important activity, you know, something which a lot of people say, well, that's an important area, and it's good that you're doing it, into an absolutely critical one. Okay, that was incredibly in depth. Can you sure. just explain to our listeners what the opportunities and challenges are for this market? Yeah, no, sure. Okay, so so um, offshore wind is is uh, a, it, you could think of it as a slightly racy idea. You know, you're putting because on 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 onshore you you're still putting these enormous turbines up. You know, with a with a a, a, a blade tip height of something sometimes in excess of 170 meters. That's staggering large onshore. Offshore, it's that much more because you're taking the same or a larger turbine and you're putting it in 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 uh, waters which are anywhere between typically 70 to 100 meters of depth. So, so the immediate question is, you know, why why go offshore? Of course, the obvious answer to it is because because of the of the available space, uh, you have no effective limitations at all. Um, and, you know, at, at the moment, um, most of the big utilities who are, who are building these projects are going to relatively shallow waters. That's changing anyway, because floating wind is something that's taking hold, beginning to take hold at the moment. So um, so, so the, the, the real issue is therefore, so logistically, it makes a great deal of sense. Um, and over, certainly over the course of the last 10 years, um, those are quite a lot of investors were concerned. How stable is it? You know, uh, you're, after all, you're in, in extraordinarily hostile conditions some of the time maybe with fast moving currents and so on and so on. Can this really hold good? The answer is has done. So because now there's a good 10 year uh, um, uh, trading history, a trading record. And, and the, the, the investment world as a whole has really become very comfortable with it. Um, so, so therefore the, 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 the compelling question is always with regard to any new form of energy generation, what is the levelized cost, cost of energy? And the levelized cost has been coming down very, very dramatically over the last three years. So only three years ago, or three or four years ago, <clears throat> if you could generate um, onshore wind at what we call a, a levelized cost of 40 to 50 euros per megawatt hour, the offshore equivalent was about 120 to 150 euros a megawatt hour. So that much more expensive to build, but also because of the discrepancy between the levelized cost and the merchant power price, a bigger requirement for, for state subsidy. So five, six years ago, the question always was when, when, when uh, uh, investors went into a new area of renewable energy, what is the subsidy mechanism? Today, the attitude is we just kick away the subsidy as far as possible. And that's true of offshore wind uh, as well as onshore wind. So the cost has come down very, very dramatically, driven primarily by leaps up in the scale of, and the size of the turbines. So five years ago, uh, the biggest turbines were three to five megawatts. Now the biggest that are in the waters are about 12 megawatts. So the, the, the increase in scale allows the cost to, to, to reduce uh, um, uh, proportionately. So the offshore wind levelized cost today is you could certainly peg it uh, between 50 to 70 euros a megawatt hour. 
and it's frequently below that. Okay. Um, what about the future trends of, of offshore wind as a, as a sector? Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, the, 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 okay, let, let's take, for example, the UK, because it's, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting test case with regard when, when uh, um, there's always been a level of commitment to uh, the energy transition uh, to, to uh, a reduction in global warming. And that was, but that was as, as, as originally promulgated by the EU, bless them. And, um, and uh, um, but that's been maintained now because of course, your generation max is really influencing both investors and, and, and uh, political framework a great deal because of the urgency that you place on, on, on this issue. In the UK, therefore, if we were looking at winds as a solution to, to, to energy, onshore winds has obvious really, really big uh, limitations because you could plaster the countryside with onshore winds in a way that ruined the countryside, but you still wouldn't generate enough power to make the whole exercise really worthwhile. Very important, there's some onshore wind in the UK, and, and, and that's great. But the real opportunity is offshore wind because we have the best offshore wind um, um, conditions on the planet. So uh, offshore wind in the UK has always looked like a very good idea. As you know, we have just about the largest amount of offshore wind now globally. I think China is always going to be slightly ahead, but the UK is otherwise. This can increase very, very dramatically. This ought to be able to at least treble uh, before 2030. So, so a remarkable level of growth. The question was, what does it cost? That issue has largely been addressed. So therefore you can anticipate a very rapid expansion in, 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 in offshore wind. So beyond that, when you hit uh, much, much deeper water depths, much higher, greater water depths, floating wind becomes the next, it's really the next big opportunity. Okay, can you, uh, Simon, can you tell our listeners how the uh, equity investor landscape is changing for uh, offshore wind as an asset class? Yeah, yeah, no, sure. So um, it was a gain for utilities uh, through, through the, really the first decades. Uh, and that's been now uh, fundamentally modified because, um, first of all, the infra funds, all the infra funds are looking at offshore wind where they can. Secondly, probably more importantly, the big institutional investors are also now getting in, getting into the sector. Why? Because it represents scale. So if you're in an institutional investor with, for example, 50 or 100 billion under management, there's no point in doing a transaction where you place 50 million into an onshore wind farm. If you can say we can place 500 million into an offshore wind project, that really makes the natural logic. So that scenario and that combination of utility driving the project and building the project and then bringing in institutional investors alongside them, okay, in order to release capital for reinvestment elsewhere. That was, for example, a model which was pioneered by Orsted in, in Denmark, which, as you know, is the public listed um, uh, energy utility in Denmark and has been the key pioneer in the offshore wind industry. One of the last questions I want to quickly ask you is, uh, how yep. do you maximize the value of offshore wind projects for exit? Yeah, okay, so, so um, the, the issue is always going to be, uh, uh, and, the, and the, the key yardstick that all investors consider, whether they are developers building a project or, or institutional investors uh, taking a long-term investment in it, <clears throat> what's the IRR that investment in that project delivers? So, or as, as you know, the internal rate of return um, for offshore wind was uh, in the region of 12% a few years ago. 
Now it's come right down to just under 10%, which is level pegging with onshore wind. So if your IRR is coming down, what, that, what that's telling you is investors are willing to accept that level of return for investment in a project. Um, and uh, so that the reduction of that, of that IRR illustrates that the values are increasing. So to maximize value, what you really want is you want, you, you want a, a project which is, if it's offshore wind particularly, utility backed because they're managing it very well, <clears throat> already built, um, and then finally uh, with a, 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 either a subsidy mechanism in place or a, a, a PPA. I think you had a question about PPAs anyway. The, the key drivers have actually been the Nordic, the Nordic, the Nordic region. <clears throat> um, a PPA is a power purchase agreement, yeah. which is a long-term, uh, which, that, which therefore turns what is, a, 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 in, a, in effect, a highly uh, a volatile and unpredictable um, um, valuation. In other words, a merchant power price. You know, nobody, nobody is really going to rely on um, a, 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 uh, uh, the long-term power price um, in, if for just purely as a, as a, merchant, um, a merchant proposal in its, in its, in its own, um, for its own sake. So a power purchase agreement gives you certainty. Now, you, uh, let's or take, for example, a power purchase, purchase agreement in Finland at the moment, we've just done one at around about 30 euros. So you're an off-taker, in this case, Google, is taking uh, long-term power, so i.e. power for 10 years at a price of 30 euros a megawatt hour. And that's guaranteed. So you're no longer concerned that the price might fall below that. Equally, what you're doing is you're giving up the upsides. So why would you do it? You do it because you usually want to bring in the project finance banks to, who finance a project and finance the construction project. They require a PPA. So nearly all PPAs that have been done in Europe so far, and really nearly all of them, um, at least the long-term PPAs, um, are there in order to facilitate the project financing of those of those of those wind farms or solar parks. Sure. Okay. Um...